Let's read these verses together, and then we'll get into uh, our study of them this morning. So we're going to start in verse 13, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you know our name, that you know the name of every child, of every person. God, we are created in your image for your glory. And Father, we know that because of sin that that is broken, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, we have, through Jesus Christ, the hope of salvation and the hope that we would live the life that you have called us to live and part of living in the world means living in a world in which you give us the gift of kids, the gift of childlike faith. And Father, help us to know what that looks like as a church family to live that out. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I grew up here in Oklahoma, and uh, we went to college, we being my wife Amanda and I, uh, we went to college at Oklahoma Baptist University, and so I was studying ministry there in college. And one of the things that they would do with us, or do for us in college, is twice a year, once each semester, they would send us out to small churches around Oklahoma to practice our preaching. Now, God bless these little churches that would receive in these college students who were coming to practice preaching. Uh, you know that they just prepared themselves every year when OBU, OBU Day in the church was coming because they knew what was coming to them. Uh, but some really crazy experiences happened over those years of going out to, to preach. One of the places that I went was in Tonkawa, up in the northern part of Oklahoma, to a little bitty church. Most of you this morning in your Bible study class had more people in your Bible study class than this little church had. It was about seven pews deep, and when I mean pews, I mean pews with, they didn't even have the padding on the pew. It was pure wood all the way through. Wood floor, little bitty. Seven pews on this side, seven pews on this side, aisle down the middle, just a few folks who were there. From the front pew to where the baptistry would have been, there was a very small space. Like as a preacher, you just turned around and there was no room to go anywhere. It was such a small little spot. So I was there in this church preaching, got into it a few minutes, and I saw some motion off to, off to the side. Speaking of off to the side, we, I thought maybe one of our balloons was deflating. I thought I heard something. If we have balloons deflate, we probably can't do anything about that. But, uh, so off to the side, I heard, uh, I heard, or I saw a motion, and so I looked over, and kids, listen to me, do not dare repeat this this morning, okay? But here's, here's what happened. I looked over it, and there was a little kid who he would sneak up behind the back pew, and he would shoot me with his finger. 
and then he would duck down and he would run to the other side behind the back pew and he would raise up really carefully and then he would shoot me with his finger again. And then he would run to the other side. This happened. I know why they sent us out to these churches to preach. Because if you can preach with a little kid sneaking up behind the pew and shooting you with his finger, you can preach with just about anything going on, uh, including birds flying around in the, uh, in the worship center when you're trying to, trying to preach. But in that moment, there was part of me as a college student that was so frustrated saying, what is that kid doing? Why doesn't somebody go and get him and tell him to stop? And I still think that to some degree. Why didn't somebody go and get him and make him stop? But then afterward, after I looked back on that experience, the Lord made me look at my own heart. And in some way, I think my frustration with that kid had more to do with my own pride than it did with what that kid was actually doing. Now, he didn't need to be doing that, and none of you kids better dare do that this morning. But, but what I found in my heart was something resembling pride, something like what I was more important than he was in that moment. And we get to some verses here in which Jesus has some really powerful things to say about the kingdom of God and how it relates to children. Anytime we read a passage of Scripture, and we talked about this last week, one of the ways that we know what that passage of Scripture means and what it's getting at is we need to know what has come before. Sometimes, and the Lord works in miraculous ways, so sometimes this happens, sometimes our Bible reading is we just flip the Bible open and we point to something and we read the verse. That's dangerous for a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons that's dangerous is we don't know what's going on in the area of that passage. Sometimes we'll call it the context of that passage. This particular passage we're looking at this morning, we really need to know what has come before it to see what Jesus is doing in this situation. So back up to Mark chapter nine. In your Bible, you might have to turn back a page. In your phone, you may have to scroll up just a little bit. You won't have to go back very far because we're just going back to Mark chapter nine, verse 35. Actually, just before that, I think it's where the, the past, it starts in verse 33 is where the section begins. So back up to Mark chapter 9, verse 33, and let's get a running start to come back to those verses that we talked about earlier. Mark 9, 33 says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Jesus is talking to his disciples, saying, What were you talking about? Verse 34, They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then look what happens in verse 36. Right after these adults argue about who's greatest, in verse 36, Jesus took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You can see how Jesus is taking this situation where these disciples, these adults, have been arguing about who's the greatest, and he says, let me teach you a lesson about what I consider great. And he says, whoever receives one of these, chi- one of these little children, one such child receives me. Then look at the next story that happens here. Verse 38, John said to him, teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
But Jesus said in verse 39, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of, him, of me. Okay, if you like to underline your Bible, that phrase, stop him, that shows up in 38, and then you see it again there in verse 39, out to the side, depending on what translation you have in your Bible, you can write the word hinder, and then you can write Mark chapter 10, verse 13. What happens is, the same thing that's going on in our passage in Mark chapter 10 is the same phrasing, the same idea that's going on in Mark chapter 9. The disciples think it's their job to be gatekeepers, to be bouncers about who's able to do things for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, wait, you're misunderstanding what your role is here. Your role is not to be the kingdom bouncer, to decide who gets in and who doesn't get in. I need to teach you more about what God's kingdom is really about. So then you go down a little bit further and you get to verse 42 in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus looks at them and tells them, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's pretty straightforward and obvious that Jesus is most certainly telling them it matters in the kingdom of God how you relate to these little vulnerable children. Then go down to Mark chapter 10. So skip ahead, the end of chapter 9. Skip ahead and see how chapter 10 begins. In chapter 10, verse 2, the Pharisees came up, and in order to test Jesus, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So they start in on this story about divorce. Now the question is right here, what, does all of these, what do all these stories about children have to do with a story about divorce? How do those go together? Here's the tie. For a little child and for a divorced woman in this world, they were both considered powerless and vulnerable and in great danger. So what Jesus is doing, don't miss the purpose of this, he's telling these stories about how little children should be treated, and then he brings up a situation about divorce, and he's putting the focus here on groups of people who were vulnerable and powerless and weak and were in very great danger of being harmed in some way. Okay, now skip ahead just a little bit in chapter 10, and we're gonna skip in front of the passages that we just read, and we're gonna go down to chapter 10, verse 17. So if you go down to Mark chapter 10, verse 17, as Jesus was setting out, setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now if your Bible or your phone has those subheadings that kind of tell you what's coming in the next verses, it probably says something about the rich young man or the rich young ruler. You skip down to verse 21 in that section, Jesus looks at him, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And then it says in verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Okay, so watch what Jesus has done here. 
stories about children, stories about divorce, comes back and gives another story about children that we're going to look at in detail in just a second, and then follows it up with a story about whom? A rich young man or a rich young ruler. Someone who had everything going for him in this world. He was young. He still had life in front of him. He had money. He had everything he needed for stability and success in life. And we find out that he was not able to inherit the kingdom of God because he could not let go of those things that he had working for his own power and his own good. This is a story about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Is God's kingdom about rich young people that have it all together? Or is God's kingdom about little children and divorced women who are vulnerable and weak? And Jesus is very clear about his answer there. Go back to Mark chapter 10, verse 13, and let's look at this passage just kind of step by step what Jesus is doing in this and what he's teaching us about being a kid-friendly church. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. Okay, if you see pictures in Sunday school material or if you see drawings or paintings about this, Oftentimes, and this isn't a bad thing, so, so follow me out on this. It's not a bad thing, but oftentimes, Jesus is playing games with these kids, and these kids are running around, or they're jumping, or they're coming up to hug Jesus. It gives it a feeling of joy, which is good. That's a good thing there. But in this context, and in the ancient world, you brought your little children, your young children, to a religious holy man, not because they were able to run around and play. Why did you bring them to a religious holy man? Because they're sick. Because they're weak. Because in a world in which the infant mortality rate was absolutely through the roof, you were desperate for a religious holy man who could provide healing. And so when you think about this situation, when you read this passage, I know we want to think about little kids laughing and jumping around and, and going up and hugging Jesus, but more likely the situation is not that. The situation is parents desperate. A child who is incredibly sick, who's incredibly vulnerable, who can't do anything to help themselves, and those children are being brought to Jesus to be touched in order that they can have healing. Now, these parents, when they're bringing their kids to Jesus at this point, all they're thinking about is immediate results. All they want is immediate healing for their kids. And that's not bad. Any parent who's lived through that situation, and many of you have, that's what you want. You want immediate results. What they're not thinking is about the greater kingdom. Now, there's a relationship here, and I want to kind of draw out an application. Sometimes when people think about kids in church or students and teenagers in church, the reason they want them in church is because they want immediate results. They want to see something immediate happen. So when I was a youth minister, parents will do this thing where they'll awkwardly just kind of bring you their teenager and they'll shove their teenager at you and say something like, can you fix this thing? Or, or like, can, what can you do with this, with this thing? And you're like, probably nothing. I just have to be honest with you. I'm 22. Your kid's like 16. I'm not going to be able to fix that thing. Like there's nothing I can do to help you. They bring their kids to church because they want their kids to be better citizens, or they want their kids to be better people, or they want their kids to be nice. And what we have to see is all of those things are good and well, but that's not the ultimate goal of God's work in a kid's life. 
That's not the, God's ultimate goal for a teenager. We don't want nice teenagers because they attend Emmaus Baptist Church and they do good things. We're looking for God's kingdom to break out. We're looking for God to work in these kids' lives in a way that goes way beyond just a one-time immediate result. So you go down and you see how the disciples respond to this. The end of verse 13, what did the disciples do? The disciples rebuked them. Okay, this is my one English grammar moment for, for, the, moment, uh, for the morning, but at the end of verse 13, the word them there is a pronoun, and when you see a pronoun, what do you always go in search of? The antecedent, that's right, and the antecedent is the word that the pronoun points back to. So if you don't get every, anything else this morning, you can take that home, that you learn what the antecedent of a pronoun is. The difficulty here is who does the word them point back to? It can either point back to the children or it can point back to the parents. So it says there at the end of verse 13, and the disciples rebuked them. Well, more than likely, these are little children, little sick children being brought to Jesus. So the disciples most likely did not rebuke the little children. Most likely they're rebuking the parents who are bringing them to Jesus. Why are they rebuking the parents who bring these kids to Jesus? Probably because they think that the parents are going to bother Jesus. Jesus is an important holy man. He has a lot of teaching to do. He has a lot of people gathered around him. He's trying to run an efficient operation, at least in their minds. They're concerned with efficiency, and they're concerned with Jesus not being bothered. And so they think they're doing a good thing by keeping these kids away but we find out how Jesus thought about that. Verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Or he was, a lot of translations will just say angry. He's angry at their stubbornness. He's angry at the fact that they don't get it. He's angry and he says to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. There's that same phrase, do not hinder. I think I gave you the wrong verse earlier. There's the do not hinder that goes back to the, math, or the Mark 9 passage we looked at earlier. He says, do not hinder them. Don't get in the way of them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's power at work in the world as people submit to him. And we see his power working in our lives. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That phrase there, like a child, is kind of key to understanding this passage. Sometimes when you hear this phrase, you have to receive the kingdom of God like a child, we'll say you need to receive it humbly or joyfully. All those things are true, but remember these little kids who are being brought to Jesus, they're just barely holding on, they're very young, or they're very sick. And so these little kids, they're not portraits of humility, or joy, what they're portraits of is weakness and littleness and the idea that they need something done for them that they can never do for themselves. There's a contrast here of the story that comes right after this with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? A little kid knows there's nothing I can do to save myself. I'm weak, I'm little, I'm helpless in my own condition. I need something done for me that I can never do for myself. So to receive the kingdom like a child is to receive it in a posture of littleness 
and weakness, and I need something done for me that I could never do for myself. Then you get to verse 16, and Jesus took them in his arms. When it says that he took them in his arms, this is meant to be a follow-up from verse 13. If you go back to verse 13, why were they bringing the children to him? That he might touch them. They were looking for an immediate divine healing. All they wanted, all they expected was that maybe Jesus would touch them and they would be better. Jesus does so much more than that. In verse 16, it's not that he just touches them, he embraces them. He receives them in. The Zacchaeus story, this is the parallel to the Zacchaeus story that Jesus doesn't just call Zacchaeus by name, but he receives him. He goes into his house. It's a sign of acceptance. So when it says here in verse 16 that he embraces them, he receives them in, draw an arrow in your Bible back to verse 13 because it's meant to show that Jesus does more for these children than their parents could ever imagine. So their parents brought them to church, hoping they would be a good citizen. Jesus got hold of their life and completely transformed everything that they were ever about. That's the picture going on here. And it says, not only that he took them in his arms, but it says he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So this is how the blessing of Jesus works, the good gifts of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's how Jesus' blessings work. The blessings aren't piled on the rich and rulers. The blessings of Jesus are piled on those who come to him and say, I don't have anything to give. I cannot offer you anything right now. I'm at the end of myself. I have no riches to bring. I have no gifts to give. I can't contribute anything to your kingdom right now. I need you to save me. And that's where the blessings of Jesus are poured out, on those who are most in need, who are most powerless. And you see that embodied in these little children. So based on that, based on that, what does it mean to be a kid-friendly church based on that passage? On your notes, I tried to list five things, and these aren't the only five things, but I was trying to stay with this passage here. What are five things that would characterize a kid-friendly church? Number one, a kid-friendly church adopts God's attitude toward children, not our culture's. So in this passage, there's an obvious contrast between Jesus' attitude about these children and the disciples' attitude. The disciples are interested in efficiency. Jesus is in, he's interested in kingdom impact. That's what he's focused on. Kids have an incredible way, a scary way, of picking up on our attitude. Sometimes, if we're not careful, and I'm the world's worst about this, will say something as adults offhanded or will give off an attitude and kids pick that up immediately. This is not a guilt game, but I need you to hear me out. One of the ways this happens most obviously is when it comes to corporate worship. Your kids pick up your attitude and the things that you say about corporate worship. 
If this is a time of expectancy, if this is a time that's valuable, if this is a time that it matters, kids pick that up. If this is a time that got in the way of something, or this is a time that's an annoyance, or this is a time where you don't like what's happening, kids pick up on that. And like I said, I am not, please hear me, this is me speaking to my kids about myself on stage. So I'm not here to guilt you. I'm just saying what we have to be so careful is our attitude about things, our attitude particularly toward children, children pick up on these things. One of the things I think, one of the reasons I think Jesus was so angry in this situation is because he knew that other children who were around might pick up on the disciples' attitude at this point. Sometimes we'll say offhanded comments about families who have multiple children or a lot of children, and we mean them funny, and we mean them in a joking way, but even that gives off our attitude toward children. Do we see children as a gift from the Lord, a heritage from the Lord, something to be treasured, created in his image, or in some sense, do we just see them as an annoyance or something that gets in the way? If we didn't have kids here, we would really have a great worship service, that type of attitude. We just have to be so careful about, is our attitude toward kids, is it God's attitude toward kids, or do we in some way reflect more of our culture's attitude toward kids? Number two, number two, we want to connect with a child's weakness and littleness. In this passage, it talked about how we have to receive the kingdom of God like a child. And we discussed how like a child there means weak or little or in need of something you can't provide for yourself. There's a couple of ways we can work this out as a church. The first is we will do everything in our power to protect those kids who are most vulnerable, to protect kids who are weak, to protect kids who are in need. You can take the gruffest, meanest guy out there and nothing boils their blood like seeing injustice toward kids. I've seen guys who seem like the worst person imaginable and then you watch them as they saw a kid mistreated and you can just see the blood pressure rise. You can just see the anger. It makes our blood boil to think about a kid being mistreated. That reflects the image of God at work in our life, that we want to protect those who are most vulnerable. The flip side of that is that as we think about ourselves as adults as part of the kingdom of God, that we would realize that it's because of our weakness as well that we are a part of God's kingdom. Never for a moment as adults, as Christians, do we think, well, I'm glad I'm past having childlike faith. It doesn't work that way. We continue to have that childlike faith. We continue to say, Lord, I need you just like that little child needs me as an adult. I'm reminded every day of my need for the Lord. So we connect, we learn from a child's weakness and their littleness. Number three. Number three is that we also learn from the presence and disruptions of children. I like it. I just have to be honest, this is kind of my personality. I like it when things work well, when they go smoothly, when you have a plan and that plan works out the way that you hope it will. But the Lord knows we need distractions. We need our plans to be messed up from time to time. We need something to come in and kind of get under our skin. Nothing and no one is quite as effective of when it comes to adjusting plans as children are. Children can adjust plans like no one else. 
They can add a distraction into something that seems impossible to distract. They can bring something into a situation where it annoys us as an adult, but the Lord knows we needed that at that moment because we were getting too focused on ourselves, we were getting too prideful, we were getting too worried about efficiency, and we were losing sight of what the kingdom of God is really all about. The way this works in my life for parenting is when somebody else's kid does something, it's really funny and cute. When it's your own kid doing it, then you're like, oh no, what's, you know, you start to feel weird versus somebody, somebody else's kid, you're like, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. And then as the parent, you're just, you know, you're, you're bearing under this embarrassment. Kids are a gift from the Lord because they remind us that sometimes we just need distractions in life to get us off of our own high horse and to remind us that we are not God and that plans aren't, way, aren't always going to work the way that we want them to work. And then when we think about the presence of children, I've been a part of churches. I've been in churches when there were no little kids there, not because the kids were at children's church, because there were literally no kids in the church. And you could see it on the faces of the older adults who were there. They wanted so badly for there to be kids in that church. Because kids in the church means vibrancy. It reminds us of God's work through generations. Let's be cautious of one thing on this point. Sometimes, and with the very best of intentions, with the very best of intentions, we'll say that we need kids in the church because kids are the future of the church. That's a good statement practically. It doesn't work theologically, though. Because what you find in Mark chapter 10 is when Jesus receives these kids in, he receives them fully as part of the kingdom of God. And these kids who are up on stage reading scripture, they're not up here because one day they might be the future of the church. We are the church together. These kids here together, these teenagers here together, a senior adult here, we need one another. We need to be reminded that God works through generations and the presence of kids is a beautiful thing to remind us of that. Now, we, we try to work that out different ways practically here as a gift to our parents during the school year, most weeks, we'll have a children's church time during the sermon that kids can go and be a part of. It's a good gift. It's something where they're able to hear God's word in a way that they can understand. At the same time, we want you to have freedom as parents. If you want your kids to be in here with you during the entire worship service, we want you to be able to have your kids in here with you during the worship service. There's freedom in that. There's ways to work that out. Sometimes you need to send off the kindergartner below or the first grade and below to have that time. Other times they just need to be with you to see what worship looks like, to see what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. All right, number four, moving through these last two. Number four, a kid-friendly friendly church remembers the need to learn and grow. Kids remind us of what it looks like to learn and to grow. When we think of growth as an adult, if we're not careful, we want measurable steps that give us immediate results where we see that growth happening. If you're a teacher or a minister or any job in which you work with people, you might be like me, and I love to mow my yard. The reason I love to mow my yard as a minister is because when you start, the lawn is high. When you finish, the lawn is low. And you look at that and think, I accomplished something. 
I did something that matters. There was my yard like this, and now it's like this, and I did something. When you're in a job where you work with people, you go through a week sometimes and think, oh my word, I didn't accomplish anything. I have no idea what I did this week. I don't know if I made any progress. When we see kids and we think about their growth, when you're at your house day after day after day, you don't literally see your kids grow. Now they go through spurts when it looks like you see them grow or when you realize that the shoes don't fit and so they're obviously growing, but you don't see them growing. Spiritual growth works that same way. Sometimes people get discouraged with their spiritual growth because they want to see obvious things happening day after day after day instead of realizing that spiritual growth is like the growth of a child. It happens slowly and consistently consistently as you're fed God's word, as you grow in your faith, as you move step by step, and it may not happen immediately, it's probably gonna be the slow process. And so Jesus says, don't hinder them from coming to me, they don't have to get their life together. I know this is not the end for them. There's gonna be a lot of growth ahead. There's something else that comes up with this point that I thought about. Here's a question we have to ask ourselves as a church. What are we doing, or what might we be doing to hinder kids in their engagement with church or hinder kids in their spiritual growth. Some of the things we have to be careful of, using big words without explaining them. Uh, As adults, we usually use big words and we don't know the meaning of them, but we just think we're supposed to use them because they're church words. We don't understand them and a kid sure doesn't understand them. So we wanna be aware of those things. Having a pharisaical attitude that's more focused on right behavior than it is on a right heart. Nothing will hinder a kid's understanding of the gospel like saying, be a better person so God will love you, as opposed to God loves you and he wants you to be a better person. Kids pick up on those things. If we, if we don't get that in the right order, they have a misunderstanding of how God works in their lives. Another thing is, is just when we think about the style of church and the tradition of church, We don't need to get into a Lord of the Flies, kids run everything sort of situation. One of the gifts of scripture is God gives us a distinction between adults and children. That is a good God-given distinction. I'm not telling us to abolish that. What I'm doing is just saying, let's be careful that there's nothing hindering this. At the last church that I pastored, we had a lady there who had been very involved in helping the church as it was being built, the church building being built, and she had been involved in some of the decorating and things like that. And it was not decorated the way that you would think of a kid-friendly or even a guy-friendly decoration style. But she came up one time and she said, I would give up all of this if my grandkids would come and be a part of what's going on. She was not gonna allow something like decoration. She wasn't gonna allow something like style to stand in the way of her grandkids or her kids being engaged with the things of the Lord. And so we're always thinking about, it's what we're doing, are we doing it because it's the right and good thing to do, or are we doing it just because it caters to the adults and it leaves out a whole other group of people? So we're always just kind of thinking through those questions and making sure we're seeking the things of the Lord. All right, number five, last thing for this morning. A kid-friendly church doesn't confuse childlike faith with childish faith. The goal, the goal for a church is that we would see our kids grow in their faith. And the same thing for our adults. 
that our adults would maintain a childlike trust in the Lord, but they would continue to take steps to grow, moving toward maturity. The goal is not, obviously, that you remain a child, but the goal is that you maintain that childlike faith that drives you into spiritual maturity, that moves you closer to the things of the Lord, what he has for your life. And so we never want to confuse childlike with childish, because we would all admit as adults, many times as adults, we are childish as well. Just because you move out of a certain age of life doesn't mean you stop being childish. So the key is childlike faith that moves into spiritual maturity. All right, as we get ready to wrap up our time this morning, we think about our response. We're gonna do our response time just a little bit differently this morning. Here in a second, David's gonna come up and he's gonna play for us uh, on the piano behind. Here's what I would like you to do. If your kids are sitting around you or your kids are in an accessible location and you can see them somewhere in the auditorium, I just want you to take a chance, take an opportunity as a family and pray over your kids. If your grandkids are in here and you can find them and get to them or kids, you may need to go to your grandparents so they don't have to come to you. Go to them so that they can pray over you. If you're here and you don't have children with you or family with you, you can pray with the people around you or you can use this time just for personal reflection, praying that the Lord would work in your life in some special ways. Hear me out on this as well. If you're saying, man, this is a nightmare. I did not come this morning to be told that I had to pray over people around me and I just don't feel comfortable. You're never gonna be pressured to do something that you don't feel like you can do this morning, okay? This is not, don't, don't, I'm not pressuring you into something. I don't wanna guilt you into something. I wanna give us the opportunity, though, that we can pray as families, we can pray as couples, we can pray as groups of friends, and just ask that God's spirit would be at work in our families and God's spirit would be at work in our church. Let me pray for us. After I finish praying, David's gonna play for a couple of minutes for us and use this time however God's spirit is leading you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship. Thank you for a church that is multi-generational where we have folks from all across the spectrum here. And God, we all come before you realizing that none of us on our own strength are able to be made right with you. Every one of us is weak and little like a child left on our own. That doesn't diminish our value. That's just a recognition of the brokenness that comes from sin. And God, we are made right with you through Jesus, that he has embraced us. He has taken us in because of his mercy and his love. And so God, we want to be a people and we want to be a church that reflect that through childlike faith, through being a kid-friendly place to be, through being a place from which we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, would you move in our lives during this time as we reflect and as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.